The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, before we begin, I've got good news to share. Hello Monday has been nominated for a Signal Award in the category of Best Business Podcast. This also means we're up for listener's choice, which is where you come in. Will you take one minute right now to vote for us? It will just take one minute. You can find the link in the show notes. And here, we'll wait for you. Okay, ready? Well then, on with the show. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Sunil Gupta grew up in Michigan. When he was little, his family would take these trips to New Delhi in India to visit his dad's family. Sunil has these vivid memories of sitting with his grandfather early in the mornings on their front porch. That's where he remembers learning about this idea called Dharma. The way that my grandfather taught me about Dharma is he pointed me to an Indian flag. You know, he, he explained what the different colors of the flag meant, but then he pointed me to the center of the flag. And if you look at the Indian flag, there's a wheel, and that is what is known as the wheel of Dharma. Sunil's grandfather told him that as he grew up, that wheel would start to spin faster and faster. It would start to feel like every birthday would come a little sooner than the last. It accelerates. And the thing about it is that we sort of get pulled away from who we are at the center of that wheel. We start to get pulled to the outside as it spins faster. And what my grandfather told me at the time is, you know, you always have to find your way back to the center of the wheel. That didn't mean much to Sunil at seven. He grew up, worked hard, aspired to be successful. He started a company and sold it. He ran for public office. He built the kind of life for himself that other people might point to and say, wow, he's really doing it. But what exactly is it? At some point in the middle of his life, Sunil found himself asking the bigger questions. Today, I'm going to talk to Sunil about the book he wrote as he came to the answers. It's called Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. If you've ever felt trapped by what you're doing, wondering about the point of it all, well, this is an episode for you. Sunil shares his approach to figuring out a purpose. He'll take you through a smart way to expand your effort and your energy and get more out of the things you're doing. And he'll give you permission to want the things you actually want and to go after them. Here's Sunil. The thing that I think, you know, I realized is that Dharma isn't this thing you have to go looking for. It's something that's most likely inside of you right now, right? It's something that you've experienced at least at some point in time in your life. It may have been when you were a little kid. It may have been last week. But all of us, I think, have experienced a taste of what our Dharma really is. The problem is that it gets just covered with all this other stuff. And usually that's other people's priorities, 
It's other people's expectations. It's other people's judgments. The thing that I offer in the book is really sort of the approach, I think, that Michelangelo took with you know, his sculptures, which is that he would look at a block of marble, and he would say, look, the sculpture is already there. I only need to chisel away at what's in its way. In the book, I offer these chisels that we can, we can all use to start to slowly kind of bring away the cruft that's, that's in its way. And it's not the kind of thing where you do it in one night and the next morning you wake up with your purpose and meaning intact. It's the kind of thing that you start to align with just a little bit more. That stuff starts to shine through. Your dharma begins to make its presence known in a deeper way. And even when it just starts to do that in just a small bit, you start to find that your life changes. I love this Michelangelo metaphor here, this idea of chiseling away at everything that your dharma is not until you can Mm. see clearly what your dharma is. How do you begin to do that? So, you know, one of the first chisels that we can use is really by identifying the bright spots in our day-to-day, right? In our day-to-day work, what is it that you're actually enjoying? Which It's hard sometimes because most of the people I talk to who are in a job that they don't like are like, well, I'm just kind of miserable, right? right? But misery can sometimes be a really important teacher because it can actually illuminate what it is that truly brings us joy. And chances are that if you don't like your job, it's not that you don't like every single aspect of your job. It's that there are certain things that are really irking you. If we can start to identify even just the tiny moments that are bringing us joy, those can serve as real portals into like what it is that we actually want to do. Like for me, Jesse, when we first met, I was, I think I was working in tech and I was just kind of transitioning into becoming a tech founder. Looking back on that, I wanted to be a tech founder because it was like the enraged thing to do. And, and a lot of people who I knew, who I, I saw as successful, had followed that path. And so I went down a path that ultimately wasn't one that I enjoyed. I didn't like being a tech founder. Right. I, I wanted to like it, but I didn't like it. The thing that I realized about myself is that I really enjoyed telling stories, right? I love sitting down at my desk each morning to write. But those, to me, felt like islands, two different worlds, right. like writing stories and being a tech founder. But what I started to do is I started to realize that there were some bright spots in my day where I was hearing customer stories, where I was getting to tell those stories to members of my team. Even telling investors the stories of our customers made me happy. And so I started to take these bright spots and I started to really double down on them. I spent more time listening to customer stories. I spent more time bringing those into meetings every day. I spent more time speaking at conferences about what I was learning. And those things actually made me happy, but also further this sense of, okay, like I'm starting to get a little bit closer to what my dharma really is. You know, I love that you point out that it can be hard to figure out what you like. And I remember there was one year in my life where I was very miserable. For me, it was Mm. another reason I had had a breakup. Um, Mm. But I really couldn't see any sunshine in my days. And I started this practice of at the end of every day, I would write down five things I was grateful for. And I'd send them off to this very good friend who was also like, Jesse, we got to do something about you because you're a mess. Let's do this. Hmm. And the big surprise for me was after doing this for several months, I looked back on days upon days of the things I was happy about. And I learned that I love coffee. And I learned that I love to take walks, right? Hmm. And I suddenly was able to actually see, oh, you know what? Here are the areas. Here are the gentle areas to lean into. Um, And it was the start of a path into things that I liked more. 
Yeah, I, I love that, Jesse. I didn't know that. You and I talk a lot, but I didn't know that that was something that 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 happened to you, and 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 how gratitude practice helped you pull out of that. Because for me, it was kind of the same thing, and I just found myself to be in a situation where. I was constantly reminded by how 99.9% of the planet would do anything to trade places with me, even though two of my companies both failed and like I wasn't as successful as the people who I was comparing myself to. I was still in a very privileged position and I couldn't feel it. Yeah. And, and I think um, for me, you know, gratitude was really important. And, but I think that there was one twist on what you said, which is that for me, I found myself intellectualizing gratitude at, at a certain point in time. Like I would sit down, I would I'd do the exercise, and I would write down what I was grateful for, but I wouldn't really feel it. I was just kind of like almost jotting it down to check it off the list. And so what I started to do is, you know, what I call a gratitude, like a real gratitude break, where I would basically pick one thing, and I would just focus on that one thing. I would relish every single detail about it, right? So for me, it could have been, you know, a meeting that like I really felt great in or an interaction I had with a colleague and or even just walking, taking a walk with my daughter in a park. But what I would try to do in those moments is I try to kind of reflect on all the things that had to come together in order for that moment to happen, right? Because usually what I found is that it, it wasn't just me. I didn't just create that moment. There were a lot of people involved in helping me create that moment. In the case of taking a, a walk with my daughter, it was my wife who stayed home and took care of our other child that allowed that to happen, right? And so what I start to do is I start to kind of figure out, all right, wow, there are these real elements at play in my life that I'm underappreciating. Yeah. And that I need to be doing more for, because I think those can also be portals into your dharma. These things that are just really trying to propel you forward. They're really trying to make your life great. And in some ways, you're almost ignoring them and paying attention to the things that are holding you back instead. Right. So often when we figure out we're not at the right thing or in the right place, we want to be at the end of the inquiry immediately. We want to be in the right thing. We want to be doing the right thing. And that frames dharma as an event or a purpose, a place you land, when actually it felt to me like you did a beautiful job of framing dharma as a process, not a landing point, but a continual evolution. And you offered up a set of tools that help us understand how we can live with our dharma um, operating as our guide in the world. And one great aspect that I would point to there is your whole invitation to figure out how to live in the gray, to live in um, like the moments of pain, right? And you gave this example that I can't stop thinking about of a golfing lesson when you were a young person. How old were you then? I was around 13 at that time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My uncle uh, took me golfing and he wore a turban. And um, we lived in a pretty all-white sort of neighborhood, and we went to a local golf course. And while we were sitting there and he was giving me the golf lesson, we were at the range, and he was, you know, very gently placing down balls, giving me sort of advice. He was a brilliant golfer, and I had been golfing maybe a couple of times in my life, so it was terrible. And he was giving me all these tips and techniques. And as we were there together, uh, these guys from my school who, you know, didn't like me very much, who, who um, you know, didn't necessarily like the color of my skin and bullied me quite a bit, showed up at the golf course. 
And to them, seeing my uncle wearing a turban was like, you know, it was comedy night, right? It was the best thing that could have ever happened to them because it just like reinforced all this stuff. So all the, all the, you know, slurs came firing. It was like, hey, I didn't know your uncle was Saddam Hussein. And, and did you guys ride your camel here to the, to the range? And, um, you know, I am burning up inside. I'm literally, I'm literally burning up. And, and my golf game gets so much worse because like I am trying to just drive all of my anger, like everything, like into each ball, right? And I just wanted to shut them up. Meanwhile, my uncle, who I know hears all this, is like completely like non-reactive to it. Like, you know, he's just, he's literally just making little comments on my swing. He's like, okay, now you're, you're, you're taking your eye off the ball. You're, you're jerking too hard. Let's do it again. And he puts down ball after ball after ball for me. And finally, I, I throw down my, my golf club and I'm like, I'm done. I, I, I want to go home. I, I'm, I'm done. Just let's go. And my uncle, in that moment, I could just feel his heartbreak. Right? And not, not for like himself, but like for me, because he knew that like, what we were hearing and what was happening was not something that was ever going to really go away. Not necessarily in the term of like, you know, racial slurs, but annoyances, people who are going to say things to you. Yeah, and- that, that's the piece that I remember really from the book was your, your sort of revelation that you were, you were just like, I just, I just want to get to college so this ends. I just want to get to real life yeah. so this ends. Um, but this, whatever this is, doesn't end. It's just life. It's just life. These irritations and these triggers, they'll continue to show up. It could be people cutting you off on the road. It could be, you know, an angry colleague sending you a nasty message. They'll show up. They'll continue to show up, right? The question is really about how we create the, the comfort in this discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately what this chapter is, is about because so much of my life was about running away from the discomfort, right? And the truth is, and I know you know this, Jesse, that, that difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations, right? And we have to figure out how to find a way to, in some ways, weather the storm, right? We're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, Sunil will talk about finding that comfort in the discomfort. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Things are always happening faster and faster, it seems. But speed can lead us to make poor decisions and be reactive rather than proactive. Have you ever hit reply on an email that annoyed you? dashed out a response and then regretted it immediately. Sunil says there's value in figuring out how to create a tiny space between a big feeling and a reaction to slow down. Speed, speed has become something that has led us to so much suffering. And and it's not to say that like there aren't moments where instant reactions aren't useful. Like if your kid is running out into the street, by all means, like chase them down. But those moments are few and far in between. And I think what we've kind of put ourselves in a state in is where we've actually started to instantly react to things. And the problem with that is that you might actually be like the wisest person in the world. You might have be very well read and have lots of tools and lots of experience. But if you're reacting so quickly to the things that are triggering you, you don't have the space to put any of that into use. None of it goes into practice. Right. And so um, you really advocate for building, even at a, like an hourly cadence throughout your day, building a window of stopping into whatever you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. I call this the 55-5 model, right? And what, what I ultimately try to do is for every 55 minutes of work or 55 minutes of meeting, I try to set aside five minutes to just do something non-productive, intentionally non-productive, right? Um, Sip a cup of coffee and just focus on the coffee. I've started to redevelop a meditation practice after falling off that wagon and sitting there and just paying attention to my breath has been a wonderful thing. Or even doing push-ups or taking a walk, but something intentionally non-productive. And the thing that we kind of realize about high performers is that they don't tend to wait for vacations or long weekends in order to build rest into their lives. They tend to be practicing what I call rhythmic recovery, where they're building a rhythm of rest throughout their day, every single day. In fact, the average high performer is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day, right? Which, like I know, sounds extraordinary because we're so back to back to back. But if you can build in even like 30 seconds in between meetings, right, that difference between zero and 30 seconds is enormous. It is enormous because what it does is it it almost in some ways hits the reset button before you go into your next thing. And you're not accumulating as much of the negative tension and as much of the stress, as much of the things that sort of weigh us down into the next thing and the next thing after that. So when people practice rhythmic renewal and when they're doing these rhythmic patterns, For the first time, what they say is that they experience as much energy at the end of the day as they did at the beginning of the day, simply by taking these little moments of rest throughout. I love that. To go back to this idea of your essence or your dharma, one example that I really loved in your book was the example of Mila, who was in a product job at a tech company, didn't like it. 
and felt that she wanted to be a teacher because it surprised me. I really expected, Sunil, that what you were going to show me was the story of how a woman left a job where she made a lot of money and went to teaching and maybe she crowdsourced all of her supplies for her classroom, but she was happy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, you took me on a journey with a woman who explored what she felt was her essence, her dharma, realized her love for teaching, and then did something rather unexpected. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that surprised me the most about dharma as I like dug into stories like Mila's, which is that I kind of expected that it was all going to be a lot of people who quit their jobs, left their work, took a leap, and found their dharma as a result of that. And what I found instead is more stories where people actually stayed almost exactly where they were, made little adjustments to their life. They didn't have to blow up their life. They didn't have to leave their job. They didn't have to leave their companies in order to start living more of their dharma, to start this process, right? Um, And Mila's was a great example of that because she wanted to be a teacher, but she didn't feel like she could afford that. Her family relied on her salary. She was the only one who had healthcare benefits. It just wasn't practical for her to leave her work and go get a teaching certificate and cut her salary in that way. So she just kind of accepted what I think a lot of us do, which is like, we have a job that pays the bills, but it's a paycheck. It's not a passion. And and we're just going to sort of live with that. Right. And we're going to go find our kicks elsewhere in life. And I think a lot of us live that way. She certainly was. She sat down with a mentor of hers and she finally revealed that being a teacher was her dream. And her mentor is like, well, let's dig a little deeper than that for a second. What is it specifically about teaching that you love? Right. And she'd never really been asked that question before. I mean, she loved the idea of being in front of students. She she loved the idea of preparing curriculums and doing all that kind of stuff. But she was like, what is it specifically, though, yeah, that, that you love? And as she started to dig beneath the occupation mindset that so many of us are in and dig into what I call the essence mindset of what's the essence about that that actually fires you up, that makes you come alive, what she realized, and this may not sound like a huge revelation, what she realized, though, is that she loved helping people grow. Yeah. Like that was the thing. She loved helping people grow. And once she was able to really sink into that level, she started to kind of think about, all right, what are the other ways that I can express that essence? What are the other ways besides being a teacher that I can actually help people grow? And what she began to realize is that there were actually opportunities right there at the company that she was working at that would allow her to do more of that. Right? She was a project manager, but she wasn't necessarily coaching people the way that other jobs inside the company would let her do. She wasn't necessarily preparing curriculums on how people could grow, which other roles inside that very same company would let her do. So she started having conversations with her colleagues. And she said, look, what I've realized is that I really love helping people grow. What are the ways that I can actually start to express that a little bit more clearly? Over time, what happened was that there was a role that opened up where they were bringing on new leaders, new emerging leaders into the company, and they were designing a curriculum for them to learn all these different areas of the company. And they needed somebody to lead that program. And because they knew that helping people grow was the thing that mattered to her the most, they gave her a shot at that role, and it completely changed her life. Never left the company continued on as a project manager for for quite a while, right? And, you know, ultimately was able to keep the stability in her life. But she very, very much felt like she was living her dharma. Yeah. You start and end the book by pointing out that wealth does not bring you happiness. It does not bring you a sense of fulfillment or purpose. But one idea that you advance that I venture to guess is a little bit controversial is that if you land well on your purpose, 
it's likely that wealth will follow. Am I am I getting that correctly from your text? I think that if you land there, you have a greater chance, I think, of creating what's important to you, right? And I think that some for some of us, that is wealth. And for others, it's to have our work be known. You know, I think that the point that I really want to sort of make true here, because I think it is true for me, is that it it's not about renouncing these things that we want in life, yeah. right? It's not about shaming yourself for wanting to have wealth or for wanting to be known or for wanting your work to be shared by others. I don't think that we need to experience any shame in that in order to come back to who we are. I think the point is that if you start, though, with where you are, the amount of creativity, the amount of energy that you end up putting into that are all of the ingredients that we know, right, that are really correlated to success. You so clearly found your own path as a storyteller. And now you have delivered this book, which feels like a story that was waiting to be told by you specifically. How do you think about what comes next? <laughs> I started writing because I, I needed it. It was therapy. You know, I found that the page always listened, you know, and I found myself almost in some ways kind of vomiting things onto my wife. Like Lena would have to listen to all this stuff and I realized I was too much for her, but I also needed something that would listen and that ended up being blank pieces of paper. And so I would write every morning. And what I find now is instead of sort of picking a project and saying, I'm going to go after that. What I do is I just kind of I kind of just write every morning and I start to realize that like themes are just starting to naturally come up. These are stories that I know that I'm somehow dying to tell and I'll go find more and more. And, you know, some of those turn into blog posts. Some of those turn into me putting something out on social. Over time, there's enough pearls that are kind of in that sort of, you know, junk pile of stuff that I'm putting on the page okay. that I start to say, all right, that's that's going to be a book. I can kind of feel that. And, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for that next one to happen. Hey, thank you. This is really wonderful. Jesse, this is awesome. That was Sunil Gupta. His new book, Everyday Dharma, is out now. I've known Sunil for more than a decade, and it's pretty cool to read the sum of all the work he's done, both externally in the world and on himself. I'll take a few things away from this conversation. First, there's this idea of looking for bright spots, the things that light me up within the work I do. They're clues for what kinds of things I might want to do next. I bet you have them too. Second, Sunil advocates for the 55-5 model of work. Give yourself 55 minutes to do the work and then do something entirely unproductive for five minutes. Honestly, this is one I use all the time and I've used it since grad school, but I shift my ratios. I'll write or edit for 20 minutes, and then I'll do the dishes or something like that for 10. I set a timer, and I'm rigorous about it, and it really helps me focus. And last, I appreciate that Sunil is not telling us not to want things like money or outsized material success. Sometimes I think happiness experts almost attach shame to these things. Not Sunil. He's asking us simply to reflect on where these desires come from. We'll talk about all of this more in this week's Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll help you out. 
Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gidron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer is Essence in Action. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. Also, you were in Tupelo. And last I was in Tupelo, everybody was still excited about the fact that you were in Tupelo and you came through. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Tupelo is great. It's a great town. I'm sure there are other towns out there like that. But I'll be honest, I have not, even in my travels, and I feel like I've gone a lot of places, haven't found one that was quite like it. Part of the reason for that is because there was a there's definitely like a pride that I found in sort of the history of being as 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 like low income as Tupelo was, right? Like poorest county in the poorest state in the country, right? And at, at one point. And um, there was a real ownership of that. I hadn't quite seen that before. I felt like in Tupelo, they, they were very serious about that. Even when I met with the, the organizers of the event, they started with that story. Yeah. They're like, we need, these are our roots. These are where we're from. The way we've pulled, started to pull out of that was very entrepreneurial. Basically, like, like, like mom and pop shops, we gave people real tax incentives and breaks in order to sort of do that and, and like made it easy for them. And that's kind of like shaped our story. I thought it was really, it was really inspiring. Well, it's a cool town.